You're listening to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast with Davina Frederick. Hello, and welcome to Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm here today with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, founder and CEO of KBK Wealth Connection. Kathleen is a sought-after expert in financial psychology, behavioral finance, and gender-savvy communication. She's the author of five books, including her latest, which is Breaking Money Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos, Talk More Openly About Finances, and Live a Richer Life. And she also hosts the popular podcast of the same name, Breaking Money Silence Podcast. So welcome, Kathleen. I am so happy and delighted that you are here today. I am excited to be here as well. So thank you for inviting me. Great, great. All right. So I have just scraped the service of your um, your bio, I'm sure. So let us get to know a little bit more about you. Why don't you tell us kind of your journey to doing what it is that you do today? And I'm particularly interested in what it means to be a financial psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so let me start with, with the first part, financial psychology. Okay. I'm a financial psychology expert. And if anybody asks why I'm not a psychologist, it's because I decided not to get my PhD and to get out there and do business after my master's. Um, okay. So financial psychology, the way I view it, is really the blend between two worlds. It's the blend between, obviously, the financial uh, sector, but also the blend uh, with the business sector. And so my background is both in finance as well in psych- as in psychology. And so it's a perfect blend between those two worlds. And so mm-hmm. somebody might use financial psychology um, and really start to examine how they think and feel about money, how they think and feel about negotiating money, asking for money, you know, managing their finances. And often what, what we find is that it isn't you know, the technical side of finance that trips somebody up, it's how they're thinking about it or their money personality or these unconscious thoughts that they have. So financial psychology and the work that I do uh, through Breaking Money Silence is really all about that. And so believe it or not, it's fun, (laughs) but it is. (laughs) It actually sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually fun to break that taboo and, and help women really become financially confident. Right, right. So how did you wind up making the decision? You you work, I know, a lot with financial advisors and helping them to um, help their clients more effectively by understanding the underlying psychology of around money, the stories we tell ourselves around money and how that affects our investing behavior and saving behavior and spending behaviors and all of that, right? So you you really help guide them to help guide their clients. How did you come to the decision to do this work? I mean, that's not something you just check off in college, like, oh, look, there's, you know, financial (laughs) psychology. I'm going to do that. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully in the future there will be, but certainly um, in my generation, that was not the case. There was no guidance counselor telling me this was even an option. Right. Uh, so it was a very, very crooked line. I mean, I think what ended up happening for me uh, is, you know, I really started out doing what I thought I should do, in quotes, and what I should do, and I was interested in it a bit, 
was I should be in finance. I should work in a bank. I should work for the government. I worked as an FDIC bank examiner. I basically should do something that is stable and lucrative and, you know, can put me ahead in this world. And all of those thoughts were probably somewhat unconscious, you know, in my 20s. Um, so I made a choice, like a lot of us do at a very young age, to enter a profession. And the profession I chose was financial uh, services and banking. And so I really loved banks. And but I didn't love auditing banks. I didn't. I was good at the numbers, but it didn't fulfill me in any way. So over the, by the time I hit the late twenties, yeah, my late twenties, early thirties, I, I decided to have my midlife crisis early. So I had it <laughs> early and started to look at what could I do that's more fulfilling in my life and, and that I'm going to feel more passionate about. I mean, I was very successful at what I did, but I wasn't very fulfilled. And so I started um, to explore uh, psychology. I had always been interested in psychology. And so over time, I decided to, at night, get a master's degree in psychology. And so what ended up happening from there is not your typical career path. At one point, I just decided, forget this finance world. I don't care about it. It's boring. I mean, I had all sorts of negative thoughts. And I'm going to just really help people and become a counselor, become a therapist. So mm-hmm. I completely pivoted and I don't regret that I did. But for 15 years, I worked as a mental health professional, empowering women around their self-esteem, their body image, uh, food and weight issues. And, and while I loved the work, I and I was very fulfilled, I was very underpaid. So mm-hmm. then I decided, like a, probably a lot of women who listen in here, I decided, oh, well, what can I do that both brings in a decent income and also allows me to be fulfilled. And so that's when I created my company, KBK Wealth Connection, which is a perfect blend for me between financially educating people and empowering people and also helping people understand and become more self-aware as to how they think about and how they act in the world really impacts their success and even more importantly, how comfortable they are in their own skin. Right, right. I what I I love that, and what I love about your story is that you created your own you created your own career niche. I mean, you really kind of invented something with it. You know, I I I'm someone who's had two careers. I had marketing, and then I became an attorney. And what I do now is a combination of those. And it took a thought process to sit down and think, okay, how can I combine these in a way? that's meaningful and fulfilling for me and also brings, you know, high value to the, to the world and to the workplace. So I, I love that journey, you know, that you've just shared with us. So let's talk about breaking money silence. I had your book and, um, and it was so, I really enjoyed reading it. Thank and you. because like you, I'm, I'm fascinated with money stories and, and, how challenging it is for us to talk about money with our spouses, our parents, our children. It is kind of the one of the last sort of taboo subjects. And I remember very well uh, one of the messages I got in the workplace. I was young. I was probably 19 years old. And I worked for a kind of a hardware store. And uh, it's no longer in existence, but it was a chain. And I got a raise. The assistant manager or manager gave me a raise. 
And then one of the other people on the job asked me how much I made. And I told him how much I made. And he got really mad and he went and he busted the manager about it. And the manager came and says, now I'm going to have to give him your raise. And yeah. And so I think about, I had always been told by my parents, don't share, don't talk about money. Don't share how much money you make, all of these kinds of things. And, and so I think the, you know, I'm not alone in that. I think other people have a lot of stories around that. And um, I wonder why it is that people find it so hard to talk about money. What do you say to that? Yeah, no, it's interesting. And thank you for sharing some insights into kind of your, some of your money thoughts. Um, You know, money silence, you know, is, is what I call the taboo against talking about money. And it involves more than just the dollars and cents. It also involves how we feel about money, what our thoughts are, our beliefs and our emotions related to money. And I think what's really challenging is not only in the United States, but almost in every country in the world, there is a belief that it's rude or unnecessary to talk about money and that the, that actually leads us to live in secrecy. Like, like you said, we're supposed to keep our salaries to ourselves, you know, oh, maybe we shouldn't share our spending with our partners, um, certainly shouldn't, you know, tell our siblings what we earn. So there's all sorts of money secrecy that happens. And as mm-hmm. a result of the money secrecy, it, it keeps getting passed down generation to generation. So I'm of the belief that initially not talking about money, and we're going way back, centuries back, initially not talking about the gold that was in your basement with your kids, right? The king and queen Uh would be like, there's tons of gold in the basement. Don't tell the kids because if the kids talk about it, we're going to be pillaged. (laughs) And so it actually made sense to keep your wealth secret. You flash forward, you know, so many generations, and we still believe, at least half of Americans uh, believe it's more taboo to talk about personal finance than talk about religion or politics um, or sex. And 61% of women actually believe that they'd rather talk about their own death than talk about money. And so it's a really outdated taboo that's hurting us. And so what I do is I not only work with financial advisors to help them be in a position to teach their clients these skills, I also have a passion and work a lot with women entrepreneurs and service professionals around, you know, what are the things that are tripping you up and how is that impacting not only your personal life, but your profitability in your firm? Mm -hmm. And so I really think if each and every one of us, and and Davina, for you, it's having me on here and you doing the work that you do. If each and every one of us can kind of chip away at this taboo, it eventually will be gone. But we really have to have some uncomfortable conversations and learn these skills in order to do that. Right, right. You know, it's been interesting with uh, women law firm owners. I've had many conversations, obviously, meeting prospective clients and talking with my clients. And I asked them about their numbers. It's one of the first questions I asked about the numbers in their business, how much revenue are you bringing in? How much, what's your personal income? You know, these kinds of questions. And it's always really interesting to me how many don't know. They don't know offhand. They can't tell me what they made last year. They can't. And oftentimes it gets, you know, sort of put off on, well, my bookkeeper, you know, 
but no matter how far we are into the new year, <laughs> it's still, I don't know what I made last year and, and it's the bookkeeper's fault, you know? Um, and, and, and then there's a kind of an interesting uh, dichotomy and that is on social media and in social groups. It's been fascinating to me because I have seen money discussions where women say, this is the amount of money that I make. This is the, this is how much I'm making in my business. And there'll be whole threads on it. But I think that the ones who are doing it are also making so much that they are comfortable saying I'm making it. And, and all the ones who aren't making as much aren't, aren't admitting well, it. Aren't saying, you know, it, I, I think your experience of interviewing someone, you know, as a coach or a consultant and asking for those numbers you know, we often do defer to somebody else. So part of it could be, you know, a woman entrepreneur or a lawyer is, you know, not looking at the numbers. It also could be that they don't want to tell you the numbers for whatever reason. And so they, you know, put off the blame to somebody else. And so I think, again, it's that secrecy and that, oh, am I supposed to know those numbers? Should I share those numbers? So I can really see it in a variety of different ways. And I, I think the interesting part when you talk about the dichotomy of things, and I, I haven't really thought about the social aspect exactly like you have, but when I think about it, it's either I'm shameful because I don't make too much or I do money wrong, or, you know, I'm not that interested and that's a problem, or it's, you, you know, the, the flip side, and this is my own stuff, but it's not super attractive to be like, I make a ton of money and I can teach you to get rich quick. And it's like, no, that's not the essence of money either. I mean, that's fine if that's your value system, but really we need to have a much more neutral, compassionate conversation around why is it hard to talk about money? How mm -hmm. is that negatively impacting you and your business and your family? And then what are the steps, if you want to, to take to really break your money silence? And that's mm -hmm. where I work with people. Um, and to really look at what is your perspective? What are the strengths? What are the challenges? And then what are the ways in which you can get out of your own way, so to speak? <laughs> because it, it usually isn't, especially, you know, especially with lawyers, smart group of people, it isn't an intellectual exercise. It's much more of an emotional and psychological exercise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's interesting when, when, you, when you said, oh, this might be my stuff uh, and not talking about money in that way. It's interesting because I grew up in the deep South and I'm, was a teenager in the 70s and into the 80s and if we were taught it was it's unseemly it's unseemly for women to talk about money and in my family if you uh, talk about money or if you have expensive luxury things or whatever then you're sh you're bragging you're showing off uh -huh. so, same, same message in my family, by the way. Right, right. See, yep. and so that, and that's kind of why I do the work I do and talk so openly about money is because I am, uh, I'm just, you know, determined to break that. I, that I'm like, you know, what is wrong with wanting to have a million dollar business? Because what we see in the long is we see big law firms um all the big they call it big law and i'm sure you have the same thing in the financial world you know like the big yeah financial yep. right in big law a career in big law if you want that you're trying to uh move up in it women and particularly women of color have 
a lot of difficulty moving up in a big law firm and being a partner in a big law firm. So, so many of what we're, so much of what we're seeing now is we're seeing women lawyers graduating and starting their own businesses because we now have the tools to be able to do that more easily than we used to um, even, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago or whatever. But here's the interesting thing to me is we see though all those big law firms were started at some point by two guys who just decided they wanted to go open a law firm and become partners and grow a big firm. And what I'm finding with a lot of women law firm owners when they when they start out and they're growing, they have a hard time saying, I want to create a million dollar plus revenue generating law firm because it's a it's a big law firm. And somehow that seems um, that's not a, an aspiration or a goal. And so I so it's leaving me wondering, what is it about women that makes them a little more reticent to not only talk about money, but then to aspire to wealth and to openly say, I aspire to wealth and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Great question. I do think that there's a little bit of a gender difference. I also would suspect there might be a little bit of a generation difference as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you are right. If you think about any male-dominated profession, um, there are it's hard for a woman to get ahead. Certainly, if you're a woman of color, it's uh, extra hard to get ahead. And, and that's wrong. So what you're talking about is being an entrepreneur and really thinking about your growth strategy. Mm-hmm. And so... I think what ends up happening, there's two things, two reactions I have. The first is I think we need to get to a place where it's okay if you're an entrepreneur and you decide you want to have a serious business, but you don't want to build an empire. I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of women fall into that camp and that's different than having a hobby. I hardly work. I'm under earning. That I think we need to look at because that's money avoidance typically. But really, you can say, I want to have a certain type of shop and I want to have it because I want to have a lifestyle. I want to have certain balance. You also, and this is to address your question, you know, can look at and say, no, I want to build a a million dollar revenue producing business. And, you know, I really want to go big. And Mm -hmm. I think what ends up happening for a lot of women is that there's such a mixed message for women to say that. So we get judged, as you know, in a completely different way than a male entrepreneur. In mm-hmm. fact, there's been research done when women go to banks to actually a- ask for business loans. Uh, they are their loans are um, not funded. Well, male loans are funded at 100%. Women would be 33% lower. So, wow. and part of the reason women-owned businesses and you know law firms is in that don't get funded as readily is because there's assumptions made about women entrepreneurs. One, they're not that serious. Two, they're not that profit motivated. And and three, they often, and this is not a myth, but often women go into their bankers sooner. So a banker sees a female entrepreneur and he or she says, well, they're not ready. They don't have the numbers in order for me to give them a loan or to help them grow. Whereas a male entrepreneur typically comes in later um, when his numbers are there. So it is a gender difference in, in the types of support that we want, how soon we want to get a banker involved in what's going on in our lives. And it's also, I think, a, a double whammy. You know, I've been told in my career before that I'm too profit motivated. 
or, you know, and, and when right. I think about that, I think, well, my husband's never been told he's too profit motivated. <laughs> yeah, like, isn't that the whole point of a business is to be profit motivated? If you are growing a business and you're not profit motivated, then you're letting down some shareholders, whether the only shareholder is you or not, right? I agree uh, with you. And, you know, it's different than the get rich quick schemes that I mm-hmm. talked about earlier. I think, you know, having a goal and reaching a goal and, and owning that I want to be financially successful or I am financially successful, I think that is so important for women. It's not only for yourself, also for the women coming up behind you and who are around you and the male allies that we have. But I think the get rich quick scheme, no matter what the gender is, often feels like it oversimplifies things. But if you do A, B, C, you're going to be wealthy. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know that wealth isn't just doing three steps or there isn't a quick way to it. In fact, what I love about the name of your podcast is I think it's similar. And I'll ask you is, you know, your definition of wealthy is probably similar to mine. Yes, financial resources are in there, but it's a bunch of other stuff. And yeah, it's so an enriched I, I, life. It's an enriched yeah. life. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, I actually created like 10 aspirations for wealthy women lawyer. And, and a lot of them are not so much around uh, the amount of dollars you have in your bank account, but the richness and, you know, how fulfilling your life is getting what you want out of life and being very clear on that. Um, Let's talk about women and risk, because I think that figures into women uh, borrowing money for their business. Oftentimes, when you read books uh, from male authors who have gotten wealthy, uh, a lot of times they do it with other people's money. And it's a, it's a secret that a lot of people will tell you in the business world is that you use other people's money to make money. and and oftentimes I see with women and, you know, I work with women law firm owners, but I have worked with other uh, women entrepreneurs as well. Um, I find that we tend to be bootstrappers. We tend to be, you know, I've got to earn it and I'm reluctant to borrow to invest in the business other than my education. You know, education will spend a fortune on but borrowing money for growth in business is something that the minute you say that to somebody, they're like, oh, I don't believe in borrowing money. But then if you look at their personal lives, they'll have a lot of debt for, you know, that they've accumulated from spending on things that were not an investment in the business. So have you have you found that to be when you look at gender differences between men and women entrepreneurs? What kind of things do you see with regard to risk? Well, I, I think it's, it's an interesting question, right? Because um, there, there is some truth, I think, to every stereotype. And the stereotype is women entrepreneurs are risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, we fall into that. I'm somebody who, um, you know, with my own personal money mindset, I'm willing to uh, take on debt and support and use other people's money. But it's certainly not my initial go-to, so that's my disclosure. Um, but when you look at the research that has been done around women entrepreneurs and risk, what we find is that men and women typically define risk differently. So male business owners will say, 
risk is really about the financial, you know, the re financial return on investment. So is it worth taking this risk in order to get this amount of money back? Whereas women tend to look at it much more holistically. So they look at, am I educated enough financially to be able to take this risk? Is my life outside of work, whether that's a family, partners, friends, you know, whatever that is, that looks like for a, a woman, you know, mm -hmm. is that in a place where it supports me taking this risk now? And then do I have the knowledge to take the risk? So, you know, mm -hmm. so basically men tend to take risks and their financial risks. Women tend to take risks too, but it's a very calculated risk. And what is interesting is that actually, it can get in the way, but it, it actually is a superpower. Because mm -hmm. when you look at women who invest in the stock market versus men who invest in the stock market, over the long term, women actually do a little bit better. Because once we make our calculated decision and calculate the risk and, and make the call, we stay in the market, we stay loyal, or we get the loan and we pay it off. And so there's a way in which um, we need to boost financial confidence and, and make it okay for women to say, okay, it's okay if I look at risk differently than my male counterpart. It's okay if I look at all these different things. And then maybe I need to have a little bit more education so I understand that in order to build my business, I need to do more than just work hard. Because you know, you can work hard you can work 60, 70 hours a week and be an under right. earner. If you don't learn how uh, to manage your finances, if you don't learn to utilize, you know, all the resources out there or at a simple level, just negotiate, you know, what your fees are going to be and ask for what you're worth. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about that because that, um, you know, women are, it's a common, it's a common uh, thought that men, you make, well, research shows, Women make 79 cents or 81 cents, depending on what you're looking at, on the dollar for every you know dollar a male earns in a, in a similar position. And one of the you know uh, statements that a lot of people make is that women don't negotiate for more money. Of course, you know, blame let's let's blame the the women on this, right? You know, blame it on them, not on the fact that an employer just doesn't pay them fairly. But um, and are you know are men better negotiators than women? Is that what the is that what the problem is? I mean, we somehow oftentimes as women will will defer to husbands, spouses. And I remember when I I don't know where I got this notion from, but when I got married, and I've been married twice. Um, and there's always this sort of expectation that the other person knows more about money than I do, you know? And of course, you know, looking, looking at both my ex-husband and my husband, you know, why would I think that? Why would I think that they were, you know, somehow financially literate? I know particularly with my first husband, he grew up, you know, poor and, never had the education for that you know and and i'm like wow you know how did i how did i get that story in my head and it wasn't a conscious thought it was just that well i i have a husband and, you know will he will help make these financial decisions and it's not on me and i and i don't think uh well i know i'm not alone in that because i have a lot of discussions with women it's shifted a little bit because a lot of the women that i talk to now are uh, the primary breadwinners 
in their families and the, the younger generation, the primary breadwinners. But still, there does there's still a lot of asking the husband for permission before they invest in their business. And they don't call it permission, but that's what they do. They say they're very empowered and very strong, and very and but then when it comes to making a financial decision, well, I'm, I need to talk with my husband about this. What is that about? Are men really more financially literate? No, absolutely not. Um, I, you know, if I had more time in this, don't stay tuned because I'm probably not going to do this, but I've written a book called How to Give Financial Advice to Women. And I would love to write a book about how to give financial advice to men. It is absolutely a myth that women aren't interested in finance. It's a myth that women aren't good at negotiation. It's a myth that men some, somehow are interested and are really great at it. It, it doesn't really go down gender lines, but I do think what you're talking about when it comes to the wage gap and when it when it comes to checking in with partners, um, there's a couple nuanced things that I think is important for your listeners to know. Mm-hmm. One is when we look at the wage gap, and, and I do this too, we often quote the 79 cents figure. And I think it's really important just to highlight that 79 cents is for white women, that if you're a woman of color, um, it goes down. Right. Um, about 50, 56%, something like that. So, so the gap can be wider depending on your particular uh, circumstance. And certainly that isn't fair. And I do think negotiating, uh, it's something that I'm very passionate about. I think there's a psychology to negotiation in addition to the skills. And, um, you know, I'm launching a new breaking money silence learning lab that is very specifically um, positioned to teach women's service professionals how to negotiate better. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to the question, are women better negotiators than men, what we've seen in recent years um, is that women negotiate just as often as men, but they're perceived differently, right? Mm-hmm. So they're perceived as opposed to being assertive and, oh, what a great business person, as aggressive or profit motivated, which is seen as a negative for a woman. I, I right. think when we, yeah, so, and so that's one thing. I think the other thing is, that women tend to make financial decisions in a different way and they process information in a different way. Now, granted, this is a generalization, um, mm-hmm. but often women want to bounce things off someone, have a lot of conversations about it before making a decision, where mm-hmm. if you look traditionally, men didn't typically do that. So mm-hmm. for some of these women, um, they could be checking in with their husbands for permission um, and you know, I certainly don't do that in my relationship, but but I also do check in with my husband to talk it through. So it, it could be talking it through. It could be asking for permission. But no matter how you slice and dice it, the gender wage gap and these myths around women and money and men and money all come down to the fact that historically we have seen men as the wealth creators and women as, you know, not wanting to worry our pretty, pretty little head about it. And yeah. even though we're in 2020, that is woven into the fabric of our society. And it seems like even though it's okay to be a female breadwinner, in fact, almost half of American women are for their family, that, mm-hmm. um, that still we have these antiquated beliefs that reside in our unconscious mind that impact how we behave around money how we behave, whether we behave confidently, whether we negotiate. And so, you know, that's where the work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the only caveat I want to say is even though I'm, you know, I'm married to a husband, um, we work as a team, 
um, and some people may be in very traditional marriages, I would say this is more of a modern marriage. That's okay if you're in a traditional marriage and that's what you believe. And I also think that there's a big detriment if you don't learn to take care of yourself financially, because, you know, someday, no matter what type of relationship you're in, uh, your partner may no longer be there to do the money for you. Right, right. And that's, you know, the age I am now, I'm in my mid 50s. And um, you start really thinking about life differently, you know, when you've got aging parents. And, you know, fortunately, I still have both of my parents, but they're in their 80s. Um, and I, you know, I had my current husband and I very, we have a lot of reversed roles and mixed up roles in our marriage and it works for us. Um, uh, from when I say mixed up, I mean, from traditional roles. Oh yeah. I and, don't cook dinner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do not cook dinner. Right. I know. So <laughs> I'm not good at husband, it. I don't do it. My husband's so good at taking care of me and I'm very, I'm very fortunate um, about, we don't have kids. We have two English bulldogs we dote on. And so we just sort of take care of each other in different ways. And that I really, you know, I feel blessed and it's wonderful to have that experience. Um, With the other thing, when we were talking about um, women and money, we're, you know, the other thing that's a big factor and there's a biological component and there's a cultural component and that's, children. And I think that makes there, there is something there. I I remember when uh, my husband and I first got married, he said, I wasn't really happy in my career. And he said, you know, go and do whatever it is you want to do, because he was making plenty of money. And that was quite a luxury. I grew up in a family where that was, and I've been working since I was 16, and I didn't know what to do. And I felt a tremendous amount of guilt around it. But I I know that a lot of women, when they leave the workforce because they have children, and maybe they don't go right back into the workforce because they want to, they made the decision as a family for mom to stay home and take care of the kids, there can be a lot of guilt around that or feelings around that, emotions of whatever kind. Um, or entitlement for some people. Um, but that is an interruption in earning. And so women may feel like, well, my husband is the earner. And so he gets to make the financial decisions because I remember at that time when I was newly married to my husband, um, and I went back to school and I had these feelings of, well, he's making the money. So he gets to decide. Yeah, and, I think there's a there's a power dynamic certainly with right. whoever's the primary earner or the only earner. Uh-huh. I, I think you know one of the things is that's wrong with our society is that yes, the only person that can have a baby is a woman, not a man. That's not the part that's wrong, I guess. Um, but that we are penalized for that. And so if uh-huh. we lived in a system where they supported mothers and were able to offer paid maternity leave and, um, you know, paternity benefits and things like Mm -hmm. that, that I think that some of this issue would go away, that we shouldn't be penalized because we want to have a family. Certainly a man isn't penalized for that. And, you know, I would argue that when you look at some of the research or talk to some of the um, younger dads, when I say younger, you know, 40 and under, they mm-hmm. feel a sense of guilt at not being home with their kids. And so I think one of the things that we need to be talking about is how do we once again close that wage gap? How do we 
um, you know, make systematic changes to make it so it's easier for, for families to have families and still make a living. And, and then I think the piece that's under our control that I want to get back to is really this negotiation and how do you negotiate for what you're worth? Because that's mm-hmm. the piece that I think is in your immediate control that you don't have to be a victim. You can learn the skills, you can get better, and you can um, you know, become financially confident enough to engage in money conversations and actually turn down work that's not going to be financially fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, yeah. as, as an entrepreneur, people think, oh my God, you walk away from work? Right. And I'm like, right. well, sometimes you have to, in order to grow your business, you have to say, nope, that's no longer going to work for me. Well, you, yeah, you know, I got to go. Have, yeah, you have to have a real uh, clear belief in in your value and what that value is and ha- you know and feel confident about the value of what you're offering so that when someone doesn't respect that value or agree with that value maybe you know and that's okay if they don't agree with your value but it th- th- then they can move on and hire someone else and it's okay because you'll find the right people who will value what you do um, and I do think that both you and I are pretty experienced in our businesses and so mm-hmm. I I do remember, I don't know if you, but I remember, um, you know, when I started out in business, I started my company. It's funny because at the time I had no awareness. I started my company and the first year I had my company, uh, KBK Wealth Connection, you know, speaking, consulting, training, and trying to figure it all out. And I I won an award called the Volunteer of the Year Award for an organization that's near and dear to my heart. So it was an honor, but as I stepped up to the podium to give my little short thank you speech, I realized that the person on either side of me at the stage were good friends of mine, but they were being paid to be there. And I looked out in the audience and I realized most of my friends and fellow people in this organization are being paid to be here. And I'm a volunteer of a year person and I'm an entrepreneur. So I went home and I calculated how many hours I was volunteering versus how many hours I was actually potentially, you know, available to be yeah. paid. 20 hours a week volunteering. I was never wow. going to run a profitable business. And right. so for me, that was an aha. And then I thought, then I had to think about, um, and this is where, you know, you work with a coach or you do, you know, some in-depth looking at your money scripts, but I had to look at, so, so what is that about for me? And then I realized if you're a volunteer of the year, you get lots of, you know, emotional kudos and you never right. have to talk about money. You never have to set right. your fee. You never ask your fee. You never have to say, you know, collect your fees. <laughs> and you don't so have to do sales. I, no sales. Right. <laughs> I was brilliant. I was brilliant. Like I'm really great at marketing, right? And back right. then I was great at marketing, but it's a, it, in some ways unconsciously a very brilliant way to get out of it. But in right. order to become a success and to be on this podcast with you right now, you know, flash forward, it's been what, 15 years I've had my business and I'm happy to say it's very financially lucrative and, and fulfilling. I had to get over that. And that's what I really feel passionate about of helping women get over whatever it is for them. It may not be volunteering, but there's a lot of ways in which we avoid money conversations mm-hmm. and we really need to take adult responsibility. Um, yeah. And I, I'm still in process. You know, it's not like I'm done. It's just really looking at when do these thoughts and beliefs come up and how do we, you know, work with them in order to continue to grow and develop a a profitable practice. Right, right. And I think you great, you actually bring up a great point with volunteering. And it's, it's a real 
uh, issue in the law because we're taught in law school that we're one of three learned professions. And mm-hmm. so medicine, law, and theology. So we don't sully ourselves with the mundane, like making money, right? Because, you know, we're of this learned profession. And then we get out and the Bar Association, you know, asks us to report every year. You have a requirement, at least in Florida, and I'm sure in other Bar Associations, you have a, re- a requirement to report how many pro bono volunteer hours oh, really? you gave away. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We are, you, you're not required. Now, here's the tricky thing. You're not really required to give volunteer hours, but you have a reporting requirement. Why do you have a reporting requirement? Because it's going to guilt you into doing it because you don't want to put down zeros every year and look like some sort of selfish, you know. And it's the access to justice argument that there's a responsibility. It's incumbent upon yeah. lawyers to provide access to justice for people who can't afford it. And so they encourage that by giving this reporting requirement. You can what you're, either- what you're actually talking about, though, is is important. And I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't mm-hmm. know that about the law profession. But, you know, having been in a series of different, you know, I've been in healthcare, I've been in business, I've been in finance, I've been in a couple of different places. And the mm-hmm. culture around money and volunteering and giving back and earning really varies profession to profession. Mm-hmm. And so certainly, you know, uh, if you look at the counseling profession, something like 70% of counselors that were surveyed are actually money avoidant. It's a wow. negative thing. Um, even more so for a counselor to be profit motivated because they're helping people. And mm-hmm. so, you know, for, for lawyers, like you said, it's giving back and making sure that justice is affordable for everybody. And so mm-hmm. my argument for that or my case for that and what works for me and my clients is I say, listen, if you can create a profitable practice, then you can figure out how to actually give back more either mm-hmm. of your time or to fund a foundation or something, then you could right. by giving it away. And right. so it's looking at it a li- with a little bit of a different lens allows us to say, yeah, it's okay to ask to get paid what we're worth. It's okay to continue to work to be profitable. I'm not saying volunteering bad by no stretch am I, but if you're using it like I did to avoid talking about money, then it's best to pull back. I mean, I went cold turkey because... <laughs> Yeah, because I'm I not a, I'm a black and white kind of gal, so it was like I it's all or nothing. Um, I did the same so, thing. Yeah. my my first year opening my law practice, my marketing go to was to join every organization out there because I'd been in marketing for years. I knew about yeah. rubber chicken dinners, right? Uh, but I very quickly became fresh meat for the all the other uh, you know wise lawyers and judges out there who said, "Hey, let's make her the." the program chair. Let's make her the vice president. (laughs) Right. So I got sucked into a lot of that volunteering. And finally, one of my mentors said to me, you know, you've realized that uh, so-and-so who's the president of the organization, who is a man, secretary who does all this stuff for him. You're trying to do all of this stuff and be a baby lawyer and run a brand new practice. And another mentor of mine told me, uh, and it, it, this was a man. He said, "Just pay the four fifty. Just write a check for four fifty for your, you know, your volunteer hours or whatever. Just give the check, the donation, and get on with your life and have a business." And I thought it was very interesting uh, way of saying that. And for me, what I have learned through the years and what I've said to my clients is, 
imagine the impact you can create. This is very much what you were saying about with the foundation. You could have a much bigger impact in the world if you laser focus right now on growing your business and creating a profit, profitable, sustainable revenue generating business, high revenue generating business, you can have a greater impact because, you know, look at the gates. Think about the impact that the gates, Bill and Melinda Gates have had in the world with their vaccination program. And they did that. Of course, they made a ton of money, but then they've created the foundation and they have really narrowed the focus over time of that foundation, narrow, 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 until they became laser focused on a niche. And they've had a huge impact as a result of doing that. Now, I'm not saying we're Bill and Melinda Gates, but, you know, imagine the imp- how many more people you could impact. Plus, well, there and, are and, a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it comes down to, you know, looking at behaviors like, you know, so you can strategically volunteer because sometimes that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? But looking at volunteering, the other one that I see a lot of people doing is bartering or mm-hmm. um, not delegating because they don't want to invest in their business. So I think there's a scope lot of creep. different ways in which, sorry? Scope, scope, scope creep. creep. Is, oh, yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. I, I work yeah. a lot as a consultant, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So that that is, you're volunteering when you're letting scope creep. You know, you, you don't think you're volunteering until you sit down to look at how much money you lost on something because you allowed scope creep. You know. Well, and I think that's where, you know, often we talk about, and, and I'm not saying that men aren't emotional, but we talk about women and being in touch in our, with our emotions, being able to talk about them. or And so when you have a gut reaction, like when I stood up on that stage in the podium and was my head was saying, wow, what an honor. And my gut was saying, wow, there's something really wrong here. Or if scope creeps happening, which, you know, I know what that's like. And it's like, you know, your gut start, you start to get angry or start to get frustrated and uh-huh. so if we start to pay attention to some of those emotional signals and just pause and go, what is this feeling telling me? What is mm-hmm. it that I may need to be paying attention to in my business? And then, you know, if indeed it's something to pay attention to, how do I change it? Is it that I need to, you know, hire a, a money coach? Is it that I need to take a program uh, from the Breaking Money Silence Learning Lab? Do I need to contact Davina to really get started with her? Like it's, it really depends, but it, it's really allowing yourself to trust your gut and those signals, which, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. But in our society, we're told not to do that, especially if we're a business person, we're supposed to just be rational. Right, right. Exactly. And we know that's we know that's not really what's happening, even when we try to say we're being rational. But I do think the whole volunteering thing, it wraps in with women and sort of this nurturing expectation and culture of we are we're meant to take care of everyone. We're meant to take care of the children. We're meant to take care of aging parents. We're meant to take care of our community. We're meant to, you know, so uh, we're meant to take care of people in our church, whatever, you know, we have more of that. There is more of that expectation in our culture for women. And a lot of us are sort of brought up that way, that this is your this is your job. And at one point, not too long ago in your lifetime, in my lifetime, probably, you know, there were women who want, you know, they, there were women who got college degrees and they 
they were looking for a husband to marry. Yeah. So they yep. did, and then their work was the volunteer work. That's the work that they did outside the home was the volunteer work. And that's how you were elevated in society, you know, was by what you did in, in philanthropically, you know. So uh, there our 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 culture is our inherited culture is still fresh, even though it's changing. I mean, it wasn't until 1974 that women were able to uh, have their own bank account, you know? I know. It's crazy when you think about it. You know, I, think one of, I know. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, I think this conversation has been great. It's very eye-opening. But mm-hmm. I also want listeners to know that the next generation really wants to talk about money. Not mm-hmm. saying that they do an excellent job yet because we don't have the skills. They aren't passed down, you know. Um, the taboo isn't broken, but a survey was taken that said, you know, do you agree with this statement? And the statement was something like society would be healthier if we talked more about personal finance. And 71% of millennials, and that includes men and women, said yes. And so what I'm finding is that gender roles are broadening out, right, in mm-hmm. terms of your gender identity, what your role is in your marriage. And I think millennials and Gen Zs have a great opportunity to continue to move forward in terms of equality and all, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, you name it. And I think that that's exciting. And so mm-hmm. for people who are listening, I think it's really starting with what's the, what's one small step, one small thing that I do around money that makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. or I feel like mm, kind of my gut says something's off and then starting to address that could be negotiation, mm-hmm. could be not, you know, could be um, volunteering too much. It could be not investing or delegating. It could be, you know, thinking you can't start a business because somehow you're not smart enough. I mean, it, it comes in so many different ways. But mm-hmm. if you think of that one small thing and then you start to think about how to address it, it's less overwhelming um, than, you know, the broader sociocultural issues, which we have to work on. But I'm of the belief that if we chip away at it one by one by one, we'll eventually get there. We've made progress. I mean, we've made progress. At least now we can have our own bank accounts and we can have, uh, (laughs) we can get, we can borrow money. And I know a lot of women law firm owners have uh, borrowed money recently because of, you know, what's gone on with the pandemic and the availability of resources. Um, and and I'm and I would also just say if you're smart enough to, you know, become an attorney and start your own business, you are perfectly competent, capable, and smart enough to learn money jargon and learn investing and learn how to grow your money and have your money work for you. I mean, right? <laughs> yes, and you don't have to. I mean, I think one of the things that keeps people from going to financial advisors or figuring out how to get some support around the financial aspects of their business tends to be not only am I not smart enough, but you know, I have to have it all figured out before I go in. Where mm-hmm. if you work with the right financial professional or the right coach or the right banker, they're going to be a person who's going to meet you where they're at, where you're at, excuse me, and um you know, it, you don't have to become an expert. Like the analogy that a friend of mine always uses that you may have heard is that, you know, to fix your, your sink breaks, you don't feel like, oh, I have to become a plumber. You hire right. a plumber and you, you investigate and say, is this a worthy person 
coming in with the skills, and then you work with them to fix the sink. Well, it's the same thing with your finances. You, yes, you need to know stuff. You need to educate yourself. Um, but it's also really helpful. I mean, I have a whole financial team on my business and my personal side to be able to have people who are experts, and you just need to know enough to make sure they're credible, to ask the right questions, and to feel like you have a connection so they're safe enough where they can educate you. And um, there's a lot of great financial services professionals out there who can do that. But I know we need to end, but I want to just follow up on that and ask you very quickly, what with a plumber, if he messes up your sink, that's all right. It's not a lifelong, you know, cost to you, right? You can find another plumber. Whereas if you hire the wrong financial advisor, then you it can feel like and could in reality screw you up you know for a long period of time or for life for some people so what is what kinds of questions do we need to be asking where do we need to look for good financial advisors particularly and i'd really love to give my listeners some ideas on how to find the right women financial advisors because I know so many women would love the opportunity to work with other women for their financial advice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those are great questions. You know, first of all, I'm very involved with the movement around, similar to you as you women lawyers, is, is bringing women financial advisors up. I coach a lot of them because they're entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, I think that probably the best place for a listener to go would be to go to the Certified Financial Planning website. It's C, I'll have to look it up exactly, but I think it's just cfp.org. And you actually can do a search for advisors. You can probably search according to geographic area and look on the list to see how many, um, you know, any women in your area. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing. And the reason I say a certified financial professional is that person has taken um, an oath to be a fiduciary. Uh, many of them practice in a very holistic way. So it isn't like the uh, broker on Wall Street that's just out to make a lot of money off you. It's somebody who Mm -hmm. really cares and wants to look at your holistic financial life. Um, Mm -hmm. I think also you're going to want to, and I believe they have some questions or I can certainly send you some questions for the readers. Um, But you want to think about, you want to interview a couple of people. You want to think about um, and get referrals from other people knowing that that means that they might be good for them. It doesn't mean that they're a fit for you, but at least you're trying to find somebody who's not a crook or crooked or unethical. Uh, You want somebody as a fiduciary um, and you want someone who clicks. Like uh, I'll give you an example from my own life. It's, It's not a financial advisor, but I interviewed about five or six CPAs before I hired my CPA. Um, because I really felt like I needed somebody who was going to be a good fit for me. And Mm -hmm. so take the time. It is, like you said, it's not a plumber, although I've been ripped off by contractors, so that can be really hurtful as well, (laughs) but it's not, um, it's, it's not a plumber. It is a responsibility. Treat it like how you would do an investigation on finding a good doctor for a kid or your elderly parents. And Mm -hmm. do your due diligence, ask the right question. And and most importantly, if your gut says this isn't the right person or you just feel uncomfortable or they're pushy and pushing you in to work with them, run out the door and find somebody else. There are some wonderful people out there that I call my friends that are really doing wonderful work. Right. And I would say one of the most important questions for 
women law firm owners listening to this podcast is that they ask if if they've worked with entrepreneurs or business owners before Absolutely. because it's a very different it's been one of my frustrations with financial advisors is that it's a very different experience to uh, work with someone who is used to working with entrepreneurs who may not have steady paychecks coming in, as opposed to someone who works with a company who may have benefits and a, a check. And, you know, the considerations are a lot different and there are vehicles that we can use, you know, that we may be able to use to build wealth that are better suited for us. Well, and it's it's interesting that you say that, and I know we're going to have to end soon, but one of the things that I ask people or encourage people to ask a financial advisor is who is your ideal client and, and mm-hmm. who is your ideal, ideal client, um, what, who is your typical client, and then you can get a sense of how often does this person work with somebody that's like me and how interested are they in working with somebody like me? Because you're right, um, there is a whole... And some specialize, by the way. So you can look for people who specialize in um, female breadwinners, women entrepreneurs, things like that. Um, they mm-hmm. do exist. Um, and it's it really does make a big difference. Great, great. Well, I like you and I probably could sit here and talk for another hour at least. <laughs> um, so we will wrap it up. And uh, I would recommend everybody go out and grab a copy of Kathleen's uh, book, Breaking Money, Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos, Talk Openly About Finances, and Live a Richer Life, uh, because it is, it, it'll give you some ideas. And she has something in here called the Kingsbury Rules, um, which uh, give you some groundwork for, give you some rules and guidance for having difficult money conversations with uh, your spouse, your parents, other people, your kids, other people you might want to have money conversations with. And I'll leave it there. That'll be a surprise for anybody who gets the book. They can catch your rules. (laughs) And and thanks so much for being here. Tell us how we can find out more about you and your other books and your podcast and all the things. It's very simple. All they need to do is go to breakingmoneysilence.com. You'll find information about the book. And thank you, Davina, for reading it and recommending it. Um, You'll also find out and can subscribe to my podcast and my new blog called Confessions, The Truth About Being a Woman Entrepreneur. Um, The last thing I want to just say, and and I want to offer this to your listeners, is we are launching a Breaking Money Silence Learning Lab, and I would love to offer anyone who listens in um, a code so they can get a discount on any of the products that we have in that learning lab, because I think it would be a great a potential follow-up to this conversation for some. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So I'll get that information to you so you can put it in the show notes. Great. That would be great. I appreciate that. And I know that they will too. So thanks again for being here. And maybe you and I will have to do this again soon to do part two of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for breaking money silence with me. It's really been enjoyable. At Wealthy Woman Lawyer, we help women law firm owners build profitable, sustainable, wealth-generating law firms without overwork or overwhelm, so you can live your best life. If you are ready to create more of what you desire most in your business and your life, then you'll want to sign up now for our free training, Seven Shifts to Create a Wealth-Generating Law Firm Without Killing Yourself in the Process. Register now at WealthyWomanLawyer.com training to receive this free training immediately. And thank you for listening to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast.